0: Welcome to episode 15 of Turning the Goldfields Green. Today's show was going to be the companion piece to last week's show, which was about the beginnings of life. That is, I was going to look at how to exit this life sustainably, beginnings and endings. But then I remembered this interview with Deb, and somehow it seemed a nice one to just slip in between them. In this conversation, we discuss her life choices and how she and her partner have decided to run their small business as sustainably as possible. And then we hear all about her solo journey on a push bike across the Nullarbor Plain. For those of you not from Australia, the Nullarbor is an iconic stretch of land that joins the east and the west. In Latin, Nullarbor means no trees, null arbor. And the road that stretches across this semi-arid landscape is the longest, straightest, flattest road in Australia. It's not barren. There is wildlife, shrubs and wildflowers, if there has been rain, and there are a few trees dotted around. I was curious about why Deb would undertake such a journey and how the experience was for her. We are so used to our comfortable air conditioned bubble that is our car, that riding a push bike such a distance seemed an almost impossible feat. But in an age of climate crisis, we have to rethink our car addiction and remember and reimagine what is possible for our human bodies and our human minds. In the course of this conversation, we discuss all of that and also what it means to be a successful human being. So in between life and death, here is a story of what it is like to be alive on this planet right now. I hope you enjoy the ride. I recorded this conversation with Deb on her front porch here in Castlemaine on Dja land. But of course, her journey took her so much further past the boundaries of the traditional owners of this land. She wrote... From Port Lincoln to Busseltown, and that was a total trip of 2,468 kilometres. And she would have passed through many, many different traditional owners' lands. I would like to pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging, and acknowledge that we are in a climate crisis through which their knowledge and guidance will be an essential part of navigating our way through. Salt. Salt. Salt, yeah. Salt. Salt salt grass grass grassroots grassroots salt of the earth people grassroots change saltgrass listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green on saltgrass.podbean.com. All right, I'm sitting with Deb Taylor in her front yard, which is a very lovely leafy kind of place. I wanted to talk to Deb because we were chatting on the phone the other day. She was gonna hire the Wash Against Waste equipment for an event (laughs) and we just got chatting about life and I'm like, you know what? You are a very interesting person and so much of your life is focused on sustainability and finding healthier ways to live really on the planet. And so I thought I would start a chat with her. And she's also done an epic journey recently on a bicycle right across the continent. So I want to unpack that too, because there was no electric bike involved. I can't even conceive of that without an electric bike. (laughs) But Deb did it just with leg power. So hello, Deb.
1: Hi, Ali. (laughs) Thanks for inviting me to talk with you. So shall we start with,
0: with your business, which
1: is used things? uh, Use things. So no D in there, U-S-E-T-H-I-N-G-S. And that came about uh, Tim, my partner, was studying industrial design at RMIT. And we already had ideas around the way we wanted to live our life. And we both disliked the word product. There was all this product in the world. And then Tim is very much into uh, shaker style furniture. And uh, he came across a Scandinavian word, which is brugsting. And there is no word for product. It's only Brugsting, which is a useful thing and then you think of all this beautiful Scandinavian d- design that is really paired back and very simple and then function over the form although I think this Scandi style of design does both function and form really really beautifully and then we decided that we would just use that translation because we didn't want to produce more products in the world mm-hmm. we wanted only to produce those things that we would find useful. I find that really interesting because I guess the word product implies
0: create something so that it will sell
1: Mm. as
0: opposed to create something because it's needed.
1: Yeah I think product for me conjures up instantly this idea of uh, you know post-industrialization you know that you can squirt things out at the end of a factory line you know it for me actually it makes me now want to look up you know when did product become a familiar term and Mm. I feel like in the 80s and 90s it became even a more used term Mm. um, and it sort of entered into our everyday life you know i i have this product i want that product i'll get that product Mm -hmm. you know yeah it's kind of like a dirty word isn't it (laughs) and now i'm kind of curious how it's become popularized Mm. yeah Yeah. it's become a very it's very much part of our everyday language now a product you Mm -hmm. know and and it refers to mass-produced food uh, it refers to clothing it refers Mm. to hair products product Mm. yeah yeah Okay. All right, great.
0: So you when did you start this business and and how what what does it become?
1: Ah, oh, okay. Well, what happened was Tim uh, went to university in his for, he, just before he was 40. And in that time we brought this house in Castlemaine and we had two children. And consequently we needed, a, we were living in this tiny wee little rental in the city and we needed a way to dry nappies that wasn't a dryer. And Tim made a beautiful pull up drying rack that pulls up to the ceiling where all you have all this heat trapped at the ceiling. And um, because he had previously been a shipwright, so that was working on wooden boats, he had this beautiful understanding of pulleys and ropes. So he came home from uni one day and he said, you know what, I think I'm just gonna start making those and um, selling them. And at the time, I thought, oh, that's a wacky idea, but yeah, whatever. Yeah, some money will be great. <laughs> you
0: at the time were deliriously tired from having a baby and needing to... So it sounds like you were doing reusable nappies, washable. Yes,
1: yeah, yeah. And that's a whole other thing to unpack, isn't it, you know? So we were using reusable nappies. And the wonderful thing that I could spruik the drying racks on was that I could get two loads of nappies dry in a day. Yeah, so that's where it started. So that started eighteen nine years ago and we've always had the online store and even that has been a journey in itself you know you know do we do how much marketing do we do and how much marketing don't we do and and actually we found that chasing stuff online was not worth it actually we can stay alive by just simply word of mouth you know people get the product and they continue to use it and we have a policy that people can ring and return or ask us to fix bits over time so the longevity and durability of them is what is paramount in their making yeah so what other items
0: do you sell through the Okay shop.
1: well we've had in the past we've had quite a few different things uh, but now we we've got down to some core two core items really. We at one moment we had a little store in Castleman that sold wonderful things like the Opinel knives which were are made in France and and uh, the Duralex glasses same thing that they're made in France uh, and they were They've continued to be made in the same factory since they started. And so now we're just down to two products, really, in essence, which is uh, the pull-up drying rack and coat pegs. So, like, very shaker-style coat pegs that go on the wall that are made from recycled timber. And believe it or not, they get shipped around all over the world. It's surprising, but uh, we're sitting on our front doorstep and uh, there's a little pile of packages waiting to go off right now. I can
0: see those packages behind us and I noticed them when I arrived. They're entirely wrapped in cardboard and you even use paper tape. Mm -hmm. Are you conscious as a business of how, what your impact is and how you operate in terms of
1: sustainability? Absolutely. Like it's been really critical to us to make sure that all things that come out of our little shed in the backyard that it can be compostable or can be recycled or reused. There is some beautiful hemp twine used on the drying racks and we hope that people take that off and uh, reuse it at home. But really, the uh, it's all recycled cardboard and the paper type was actually a score. About three years ago, somebody was had a whole pile of it at their factory and they were going to get rid of it and we managed to get hold of it. So until it runs out we'll continue otherwise everything is always been just twined um, tied and beautifully tied up and we assume that they get to where they need to get to without being broken open Mm. so we don't use any plastic it was really critical to us that whatever we were sending in the world had as little impact as possible
0: what other ways do you consider the environment in running your business
1: okay we think very carefully about the electricity use, or we think about. Oh, particularly the big thing is is about efficient use of materials. That's been very big for us. We did, we still have, and uh, Tim designed this use of materials with no wastage. We have a little chair that we also sell called a- the Alien, and out of one sheet twelve hundred by twenty four hundred sheet of ply, we can cut twelve seats and there is only what ends up in the palm of your hand is the wastage there is a cross section in that design that we take out and then we make little table trivets from them so use of materials and no wastage in the cutting so designing things so that we can cut in a way that has minimal waste like really minimal waste you know that uh, chair was we kept designing it on paper until we could get it perfect to one little handful of waste and you get 12 seats from that. Yeah, it's a great little design. It, it works really beautifully and, and same here. You know, So we tend to, any wastage, we try to think of a new ways to reuse it and not in useless products but in useful ways. Like the table trivets are really a great way to reuse them. So you work largely from home.
0: Are there other considerations that you have in terms of the yeah, environment?
1: Uh, I guess I would think that this is really critical to sustainability is the way that we could live as a family mm-hmm. and that we would have very little impact uh, that was negative to our well-being which I think is really critical to our sustainability and it was really important to us to be able to be available to children and home and that we would want to work in an environment that was really good and healthy and and supportive of us and that for both of us seemed like in our own backyard was a really nice place to do that, but that enables us then to take that stored energy from our sense of well-being and use that in the community. You know, I feel like it is possible to go out and be in the community because we've created a life for the want—I I don't like this word—but you know, a lifestyle that is really supportive of us, which I feel like that that is enables enables us to live in a more sustainable way in the world mm. in the greater world and have enough energy to give mm. back to the community I do know
0: you've gotten involved in a lot of community things over time I've known you helping out with growing abundance
1: I suppose in the beginning when we first when we first came to Castleman and our children were small I was very much involved in mask mm. and then of course the, when we were at school I was very involved in lots of activities there and then and now um yeah i dance which i think is a really healthy way to be in the community and to share and connect with other people in our community Uh, and I spend a lot of time running in the bush
0: so how much do you run because i feel like this ties into your bike ride
1: i guess you know it's really interesting ellie that you're asking about sustainability and then i'm sort of joining the dots because you know I wonder if we can become more sustainable if we stop watching our watches and uh and so when you say how much do I run I have no idea I have no idea how far I run or how fast I run you know like I'm I think what's becoming increasingly more important to me is that I don't I don't measure those things that I'm just in them so uh, I probably run four or five times in a week I could be gone for half an hour could be gone for 10 minutes I could be gone for an hour and sometimes even up to two or three hours if I get lost um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah but I do like to run you know just even in that running I think very carefully about the running shoes I would buy mm-hmm. and I also like to keep wearing the same running shoes for a long time so thinking really carefully about how they're made and who makes them and what effect that that, that is having in the world. I am keen to give people
0: clues about how they can get more sustainable products in their lives. Do you, Have you found the answer in sneakers?
1: <laughs> in sneakers? La Sportiva is a very good company that are, that are doing really good things. I would check out La Sportiva, and then, you know, if you're an outdoorsy person like we're outdoorsy people, then thinking really carefully about the gear. Actually, Alia I really want to tell you this. Before I was about to go on my journey, I got totally sucked down the whirlpool of uh, gear and disgusted myself and went off to Little Bourke Street in the city and purchased a whole lot of things that wicked and dried and did all those things and then got home and realised, oh my God, I've gone down the rabbit hole um, and promptly went back to the city on the train and returned it all. Look, I think really thinking about that thing, do I need it? Have I got something that I could reuse? Is this something that I find comfortable capitalism has thrived because actually advertising, the art of advertising has just got more manipulative and 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 better at convincing us we need things. Mm. I just keep asking myself, you know, do I need this? Have I got something else that will do the job? Can I repurpose something? You know, repurposing, uh, Tim is particularly fantastic at turning things upside down and gluing them back together and fixing things. And I think it's really good to research and think about, really, do you need something new?
0: When I heard you were doing this ride, I was like, OK, she's really fit. I'm sure she can do this. And I don't... I mean, the distances... You rode right across Australia to West... From Victoria to Western Australia. That's
1: not entirely true, actually. (laughs) And this bit is not sustainable at all. I actually um, packed up my bicycle and it's a 30-year-old bicycle frame but I had it retrofitted with some new, wonderful new bits. And that bicycle I bought secondhand um, 18 years ago and I've looked after it and then I had it retrofitted and I packed it up and I flew actually to Port Lincoln on the Eyre Peninsula and then I put my bicycle back together and I think you know going tying that thread back to sustainability was this beautiful moment of realizing you know we can be adaptive and fix things ourselves and you know as a woman I felt quite empowered by the fact that I had two days to work out how to put my bicycle back together myself and I did that and I learnt a lot. Mm. Then from Port Lincoln I headed off and I went across to the west coast of the Eyre Peninsula and then I went up to Ceduna and then from Ceduna I headed west across the Nullarbor which was an extraordinary experience Um, yeah if you've got time I'd go on the slow boat across the Nullarbor and then once I was across the Nullarbor I headed south and went down to Esperance and then to Hopetown. You have to go up a bit to Hopetown across to Albany. And then the intention was to head east. Again, I grew up, I was making a journey home to myself and I was heading east up near, uh, through the central wheat belt of Western Australia to near Kalgoorlie to a little place called Southern Cross. But unfortunately, by the time I got to Albany, uh, the fires had started in Western Australia. I'm not sure how much they were covered here, but it was already on fire in Western Australia. And the temperatures in the town where I grew up were then 46 degrees and staying at 46 degrees. And I was thinking, ah, oh, you know, having forgotten my childhood that no, it doesn't cool down overnight. And it was 37 in the evening. So riding during the night was not an option and where I was heading was more barren than the Nullarbor, so no place to hide in the middle of the day. So I decided to change my journey and I rode around the coast and I stopped just the other side of Perth in a place called Busselton. So what prompted this journey? I think I've always wanted to walk home. I, I still consider the West my home and I particularly that even though I don't have family in Southern Cross anymore, I feel like I'm very of that Red Earth country. I've always wanted to walk, but logistically that would take a lot of organisation and uh, would require other people to go and drop water for me. And just it never, I could never work it out. I just had a moment where our oldest child was finishing school, and the last time I went on a cycle tour was. 18 years ago (laughs) so I thought oh I really wanted to make a journey back to myself Mm. yeah and so I decided to go Mm. on that journey and I thought I know how I can do it I can be totally self-sufficient I can ride my bicycle I carried all my food with me I had food sent ahead and there's some great old fashioned systems that still work like post Rosante is really fabulous thing and lots of people may be too young to understand how that works okay so what used to happen is that when you were traveling and there were no iPhones or even no telephones you might meet somebody on a bus and you'd say I'll leave a message for you at the post office so you would go to the next town and you would leave a message I would say Ali Hanley and I would leave you a a letter and then Ali Hanley you could go to the post office and you'd say oh there's a letter here for me at Ali Hanley and the letter might say Say something like, I'll meet you on the 23rd at the cafe on the corner of this street and that street. And you can, so what happened was I sent all these, I sent three parcels on with food in them. And then I was lying in my tent in Sajuna and I went, Oh, I've sent one of the food parcels to border town not Border Village, and Border Town is in South Australia, and Border Village is close to the Western Australia border. And the beautiful thing was the next morning I got up and I just rang the post office at Border Town, and, you know, because it's post-Risante, all I had to say was, you have a parcel for Debbie Taylor. Could you please forward it to Border Village? No, no ID, nothing. so there's some really great systems that we should hang on to for when all our phones crash (laughs) you can still communicate yeah Yeah.
0: there's a there's a lot of trust there i guess that people aren't going to hijack other people's things i guess but you'd need to know exactly who and where and
1: what yeah and they were quite specific what have you got here and i had i knew i had two parcels one was in a box and one was in a bag Mm. and it was sent on and even those food parcels, I had another food parcel at Eucla. The funny thing there was is, you know, the people at the service station say, yes, you know, you can send food. And then I arrived there and I asked, oh, do you have a box for Debbie Taylor? And then just in, in the open space in the service station, here's my box shoved in the corner, you know, like anybody could have picked it up, but nobody had. It was beautiful.
0: How did you manage water
1: riding that way? Because you must have sweated a lot. Yeah. <laughs> the big thing was I rode a lot further than I had thought I was going to be able to because by the time I got all the food and water on my bike, I allowed that I wouldn't be near any town or any water source for the worst case scenario, which was for two nights out. I figured I would be able to travel enough Far enough on the Nullarbor, particularly to get to another town to get more water. And so I headed off from Sejuna actually with an additional 16 litres of water, which uh, is uh, 16 kilos additional. And in fact, I had to buy bottled water. I didn't have enough bottles. So I just had those in the bottom of my panniers and then I could, I had access on my bicycle to six litres quite easily so on the Nullarbor when I needed to refill for water then I had to purchase water because water is really scarce out there and those service stations are bringing in water they don't get enough rainfall they're shipping water in And they have very clear signs, please don't ask for water because it may offend. And I paid quite a lot for water. And I was happy to pay for water because I grew up in an area where we often didn't have water. I grew up in a place where we would often in the summer have no water between one and three every day. And so I was really aware that it was a precious resource and I I was happy to pay for the luxury of that. On one occasion, or several occasions actually, for two uh, for two bottles of one point five liters, I paid twenty one dollars. Yeah, and I can tell you, you don't spill any. <laughs> <laughs> You're very careful with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, in terms
0: of the simplicity of your life as you were on the road, um, talk to me about you know what you've felt about the amount of stuff we have in
1: our lives and how little you needed while you were writing? Uh, I think the um, way to explain that best is when I came home I suddenly my anxiety went through the roof because um, our life is just full of stuff actually stuff that people have given to us that we don't really want but because it's been given to us we think we should take care of it Um, but I, I suddenly became really anxious about all the stuff because on my bicycle I was so happy because I knew exactly where everything was and I had one set of clothing and that was the clothing I was standing in and I did have a cotton dress I could put on at the end of the day but I, for food, I just had a bowl and that bowl I also used for, you know, I might have, uh, my breakfast in the bowl and then you know I would make my cup of tea and have it in the bowl and I traveled with just a bowl and a spoon and a beautiful fold down opinel knife and I had a little gas cooker that folds down to nothing but I really think there was something you know we, t- we hear a lot these days about anxiety and you know I've been somebody who suffered from anxiety myself and just coming home and feeling that anxiety come down on me because of the stuff and suddenly I didn't know where stuff was (laughs) Mm -hmm. whereas you know on my bike there I knew exactly where everything was because I only had what I had which was very limited you know a sleeping bag a tent or I did have a little sleeping mat really that and food and water and the clothes I was standing in that was it Mm -hmm. That was it. You know, toothbrush and some toothpaste. I also had a bandana that I wore across my face because it was so hot. Yeah, so not much. Yeah, it was nice to travel with so little. I had previously travelled like that before, and I know the joy of no stuff. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's we're drowning in it. Mm. weighs
0: us down mm. absolutely hence everyone's fascination with Marie Kondo and you know all of this yeah. m- like moving towards less and more organised well
1: I once heard somebody say something You know, a long time ago now probably 20 years ago he was a cook he was on the ABC in Western <coughs> Australia and he was asked why did he think there was this proliferation of cooking shows and he said because I actually think we're hungry for nurture we're really hungry for nurture so we're not actually really wanting to learn how to cook but we really there's something lacking in us so we're really just engaging in watching cooking shows and buying cooking books and buying the bowls and the spoons and the beaters and we're not using them because we are actually really hungry for nurture and I Mm. think there is many things that we purchase in our life that we hope are going to stuff the gap you know once i get the once i buy the then i'll feel then it'll be perfect so true
0: and i think that nurture question is also it's a really fundamental childhood experience isn't it just sitting there chatting to your mum while she cooks or one of your parents as they cook and there's that that parental figure who is cooking for you and Mm. you'll get to eat it later and you're
1: probably snacking a bit while they're cooking and it's it's yeah you know kitchens are the heart of the home and um for many people and for many people not but you know on the whole as a culture food is i mean humans you know food is at the base of it all isn't it without it we can't we can't survive you know the interesting thing is is um what i realized being away how critical water was and that um Somebody who'd done a lot of travelling before had said to me that, uh, you know, at any point if you have to make a decision, get rid of the food, not the water. Like if you're stuck on space or you're stuck between big distances, then you're offloading food, you're never offloading water. Mm. And I think, you know, water is something we really need to pay attention to.
0: Absolutely. And the simple fact of it is that you can only live something like three days without water but you can live a month without food or something
1: yeah i don't know what it is but i'm sure you can live a long time without food yeah yeah i don't think it's very healthy for you at a certain point
0: (laughs) organs start (laughs) shutting down but you know you can without water you will die much more quickly than without food
1: yeah i mean i thought it was less than three days with without water Mm. i would imagine you know environmental conditions would play into that you know 46 degrees you can probably last 24 hours riding
0: a bike even less
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah I think what is really interesting riding a bike is that the ambient temperature can be 36 degrees but actually you know all this bounce and of heat it's actually 46 degrees on your bicycle it's actually really really hot from the road yeah from the road oh and a really interesting fact is that western australia actually has a hole in the ozone over it and so it could be just 26 degrees or 25 degrees and the sun is you can feel the sun biting you Mm. it is so intense Mm. the sunlight is so bright and so intense And it's quite frightening to think is if we are continuing to have these rises in temperature, the intensity of that light is going to make living outdoors quite difficult. You know, I was getting around looking like a better one because that was the only way to keep the sun out.
0: So with a... A veil over you and a, yes. a complete <laughs> covering of your yes. face. And
1: hands, gloves on my hands. I forgot to mention the gloves. And socks on the Nullarbor plane. Can you imagine? Socks and long pants and long sleeves and collar up and bandana across my face, glasses. or oh, a great sunshade on my riding helmet. Yeah, you know, you have to really protect yourself from that heat. And I wish you could actually see on the radio but that'd make it tv wouldn't it mm-hmm. but um i did go away with this 50 plus high vis shirt that is now bleached white on the back from the sun so it used to
0: be fluoro yellow fluoro pink
1: actually <laughs> <laughs> so much for hiding my way across the nullabor as a female but um fluoro pink and it's now white wow. What sort of characters did you meet on the road? Oh, I have to say I met two outstanding people. I have to say I was sad not to meet any women. So uh, one guy I met I heard about, um, people kept saying to me, you know, often people just pull over and chat to you, which is a bit funny. But I, they kept asking me if I'd bumped into the guy with the barrow and... I hadn't, but then I did bump into the guy with the barrow, you know, walking backwards, pushing this barrow up a big hill. And the beautiful thing is, his name is Dean. And Dean, off his own back, he was working for mental health awareness. He was a very beautiful man. He walked, a, you know, having, I was about to ride where he'd pushed his barrow. And I can tell you, he did some really hard yards and he was living on the goodwill of people so he was really relying on people to take him in and bed him and feed him and he was a survivor of an attempted suicide. At the time when I met him people were stopp- had been stopping and signing the names of loved ones on a, on a flag yeah. and uh, he had that flag on the barrow and really he was just putting one foot in front of the other and sharing the story of possibility which was really beautiful i spent an hour sitting beside the road talking with him was really quite an emotional and rich moment that this man had uh, you know really taken the impetus to move forward in a really trying and hard situation. Yeah. Mm. I thought he was quite remarkable and what I thought was really interesting was the the type of people that were really listening to him. You know, people were really everybody said, "Oh, it's so great that he's talking about mental health." Like that was the message I got all the time. So his message was getting through to people Mm. everybody you know would say the guy with the barrow and he's talking about a great issue mental health Mm -hmm. was really working yeah yeah very interesting let's talk about the fact that you as a
0: woman and even an older woman took on this massive physical journey across a pretty barren landscape and i'm imagining there were trucks passing you
1: and like what did
0: you ever feel unsafe or insecure
1: uh, I think I felt the most unsafe in imagining what could happen. I was very fortunate, and there's a wonderful young woman here, Mel, who is one of the gung-ho grower girls. She had previously done a big journey with another woman, B. and they had ridden from Port Augusta to Darwin, and B has subsequently gone on and ridden around the world, and she very kindly gave up, like, four hours one weekend talking to me through that very issue of how paramount your own safety as a woman is. And uh, we talked a lot about, you know, how to remain safe. The message that kept coming to me from her and another woman I, I spoke to a lot around, you know, really being tuned into your instinct, you know, when is when it's not safe, it's not safe. My biggest fear was always sleeping at night time, you know, and would I be safe and how I would be safe. But look, you know, I felt really safe on my bicycle and I was really happy cycling. And in fact, I'm planning to do the trip again because I feel like. I was so happy just on my bicycle I didn't stop a lot. <laughs> I rode apparently for 15 or 16 hours a day and I didn't feel unsafe. I'd often feel unsafe at night time but that was more I suppose an instinctual fear and I found that even if I was camping in the bush I often could pull into a place where there were people camping down a little bit. So. I really felt very safe on the road I had a policy of getting off the road for the trucks I had a rear vision mirror I I didn't feel compelled to listen to music or podcasts or I was just quite happy to be in the silence of Mm. the nature it was really very beautiful Mm. so I would just pull off the road for the trucks and then a couple I met later on said to me, Oh, the truckies really like you. Like we hear them talking on the C B you know, they say, Oh, there's a woman on her bicycle and she's pulling off to the side and and I guess really, you know, I'm fifty six years old in a few days and what I felt like was when I was out there I've always been very physical and no I didn't train for the journey. But I think there is a lot of merit in just thinking about a journey or just Mm. thinking about a physical feat and I really had this strong feeling that if you can just imagine yourself doing that Mm. then you can do that so I spent a lot of time thinking about riding across the Nullarbor and it was quite an easy journey yeah I felt like there was a moment I think on the Nullarbor where I went there was a light bulb moment where I thought all my life I have been preparing for this journey it was really quite a big moment for me where I just thought everything has been leading to this place. Mm. Mm. That's
0: amazing. So you really did come back to yourself really in that journey, which was one of your goals?
1: Yeah, I think I, I think so. I, you know, at the risk of sounding really clichéd, <laughs> I feel like, yeah, I can be so much much kinder to myself. Mm. You know, like we as human beings, we're quite extraordinary, aren't we? You know, we're really resilient. Mm. We're really very resilient and we are really very capable. Mm.
0: I, I know we were talking about not counting time, but how long did you take for the journey? How much time did you take out of
1: your life? Uh, I can't tell you exactly because I haven't really added up, but I think it was I was actually on the road six weeks. Um, and I think something like I spent five weeks actually cycling and I probably uh, probably even less and and you know in that time I had time off you know if you're counting that um, I didn't I think what is really interesting it was such a rich journey I have no record of that journey like I didn't take photographs and I didn't I didn't feel compelled to write a journal or it it was so. It was so filling, I felt so filled up by just where I was that it didn't seem necessary to do any of those things. And somebody asked me, I think an interesting one is someone asked me, you know, did I ever wake up and feel like, oh my God, I have to get up and cycle? <laughs> and I never had that moment. But then if I reflect on that, I think I never had that moment because I simply would have said, well, I'm staying in bed today. Mm -hmm. And you know, I probably stayed in bed. And I probably had preempted that the night before. Oh, Ali, one thing I really want to tell you is, you know, this thing about reusing, recycling. And before I went away, I've been fortunate enough to work with a body worker, Marg Peck, who kindly gave me some rock tape, which is this tape you put on when you've got injuries. And it's quite solid. And she gave me this end of a, of some rock tape to take with me as a gift, which was very kind because it's very expensive tape. And a few days in, you know, the thing about my bicycle was that I was really looking after it. Like every day I would finish and I would wipe it down and clean the gears and re-oil it. And, you know, this was the machine that was really going to get me where I needed to. And I was fascinated at how fixated I became about its mechanics, and it worked. I didn't have one f- – I had no mechanical issues, but I was t- really taking good care. But anyway, on the second day, I had a bit of a fall, which was a whole other story, and I broke my rear vision mirror, and my rear vision mirror was like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? You know, and I rode the rest of the day with holding my rear vision mirror, which was just wasn't going to work. That night I got to the Nullarbor Roadhouse and I camped behind the Nullarbor Roadhouse and I thought, I know what I can do. I can use rock tape. And I fixed my rear vision mirror back onto my bicycle with rock tape. And in fact, by the time I got to Perth, there were just some little things on my bike that I needed to fix and it was covered in pink rock tape, (laughs) (laughs) which was quite gorgeous actually I'd love to share this with people because um you know everybody said you would need you know cycling I think they call them nicks or chamois or something and I would need all this cycling gear and thank Christ I didn't listen to that I just ended up wearing a pair of cotton pants that I dance in I brought a 50 plus workwear shirt that I now can wear gardening yeah you know there's so many things that we think we need, but actually we don't need. Mm, or We can be convinced that we need them. And my beautiful sandals, which were, you know, also my cycling sandals, which meant I only needed one pair of shoes.
0: I find it interesting that you were so fixated on the bike as the machine that was getting you there. But it's actually your body was the machine that was getting you there. Did you experience any flat tires physically for yourself so to speak?
1: (laughs) No I didn't at all and in fact I've just been sharing with uh, another friend who is starting to be a nutritionist and has a very good understanding of nutrition and food and well-being and we were talking about this balance of you know it's not just food that you really need to be really fulfilled and happy in yourself and I just felt Really, like I was, I had this really rich and fortunate opportunity. I realized how wealthy I am to have that opportunity, you know. Like, yeah, it was very fortunate. So I didn't have flat tire moments. I only had moments of going, I am so goddamn rich. You know, I live in the West. I have the choice to get on my bike and ride across the country for seven weeks. Like, I mean, God, you know, I'm 5% of the world's population who gets that choice. yeah, And
0: 0.0000001% of the population that makes the choice to do what you do.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, as somebody said to me, it's not on my bucket list. (laughs) I'm sure it isn't. But um, I guess for me, you know, the older I get, I realize it's really important for me to physically move, Mm. you know, that, I have to be physically moving to be able to think. You know, and that's uh that's become more and more evident in my life. If I'm sitting down I, I can't actually think. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. yeah, I think also another thing that your journey brings up for me is this idea that we don't need petrol powered vehicles we don't need high-tech vehicles or we can have a bike you could have walked if you had wanted to you could have walked and the indigenous people of australia did cross the entire continent to collect ochres for their ceremonies or you know different things and
1: completely and i feel really almost like i've you know like i feel slightly embarrassed that people would say you know i rode a Across there, Like, yeah, I rode across on this beautiful bike that was ergonomically sound. I had these wonderful panniers that carried food and water. And, yeah, you know, and then actually, you know, I, I got on an aeroplane and I flew back. I didn't ride back. Yeah, I think there is so many ways we can enjoy this country, you know, and it isn't at the end of a long flight. You know, I come home to Castlemaine and realize we live in such... I I hear it all the time, you know, oh, we live in a bubble. Well, I am very thankful for the bubble sometimes, you know, and I'm, I'm blown away. I've now taken to riding up Mount Alexander, a round trip, and coming back into town on my bike, and people think life is happening somewhere else. You'll go to the south of France or you'll go to Tuscany or you'll go somewhere else and it's happening there or Bali or wherever. But wow, here is really extraordinarily beautiful and rich. People would save all their lives for two weeks of this kind of lifestyle we can afford ourselves here. We are all living incredibly rich lives and that is, and I'm not measuring that in bits of paper, you know, Mm. it's about the things we have access to every day, you know, here we are sitting on our step, we're not afraid that somebody's going to jump over the fence with a machine gun and Mm. shoot us down or hide, you know, we don't have to hide our children under beds or, yeah, we are living a very rich life and we eat the most extraordinary produce and yeah
0: we are lucky we are very lucky and I think that's one of the takeaways from I think your journey and sustainability in general is if we can be thankful and recognize how lucky we are right now Mm. in what we've got and stop seeking more and more and more and keep things really simple we can still feel so healthy and bountiful Mm. you know because i think people are they're seeking they're seeking a way to feel rich this is what that aspirational thing is they want the Mm. bigger house and the bigger yard and the nicer something or other Mm. but they're seeking the feeling of feeling content they're seeking the feeling of abundance you know
1: whereas we are living in this you know i keep saying to friends like i feel like i'm living in the day spa you know like i am really living it and that's no different from people next door. We're eating all this beautiful fresh food, and have this clean air, and we get to swim in my favourite place, the reservoir. And um, but you know, it, Ali, just when you were saying that, and uh, it's going to sound really bad, but I, suddenly what came to mind was Greta Thunberg saying, you know, right here, right now, if we don't stop being driven by this money system. Mm-hmm. By judging ourselves and judging others on how much we accumulate, we are so going too fast in the wrong... You know, we're all almost hitting the... Well, we are hit, we've hit the wall, you know. Like, that's not a measure of who we are or what we're capable of or what we can become, these bits of paper in a bank or a house or in product. It, we really have to change our thinking around how we exactly. view each other
0: view what success is yeah, what it means to a, be a, a success. success
1: yeah human being you know and you look around this town and I see lots of successful human beings that I can tell you are not driving Porsches or BMWs in fact they're probably on their push bikes <laughs>
0: That was the very gorgeous Deb Taylor talking with me about what it is to be a successful human being on this planet right now. I hope you enjoyed her story. Tune in next week to find out about endings and what we can do to make our exit from this world as sustainable as possible. Salt. 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 Salt of the Earth People. Grassroots Change. Saltgrass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green on saltgrass.podbean.com. My name is Alison Hanley and I have been your host today. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. If you are interested in any of the books, articles or websites mentioned in the show, you can find links to them in the episode description at saltgrass.podbean.com. You can follow us on Facebook or subscribe to our emailing list to get reminders and updates about the show. Email us at Saltgrasspodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you if you have ideas for topics, know someone amazing we should talk to, have a recycling tip, a green product review, or have a song recommendation. Again, email us at saltgrasspodcast at gmail.com. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. This program was produced in partnership with the Mount Alexander Sustainability Group, MASG, and Main FM. It should be noted that the statements and opinions of myself and the people I interview are not the official positions held by either Main FM or MASC. We welcome feedback and responses to the ideas expressed on the show. If you would like to respond to something discussed on the programme, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at saltgrasspodcast at saltgrasspodcastgmail.com.